this fourth Sunday of Advent is often called the Angels Sunday. So we brought a harp in. Isn't that a wonderful idea? Cindy, I had forgotten she even played the harp. I would ask that you take your Bibles and let's turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. We're going to begin with the second verse of a wonderful, well-known prophecy of the Old Testament. As I mentioned, the lectionary this year is taking us back and forth, at least I've chosen to go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New, to the prophecies of old, to the, the story as it's told by Luke. And of course, on Christmas Eve, the readings are, are wonderfully from the, the Gospel of Luke as we celebrate the birth of our Lord in that gracious place. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 in just a moment. Now, I don't know, I'm not an economist, so I don't know what it will mean for China's currency to now be one of the five international monetary fund reserve currencies, along with the dollar, the pound, the yen, and the euro. From a human perspective, we all recognize that this is a dramatic shift in the world economy, that China has grown to the place where it was required by them that we include their currency in the world's economy. I don't know what this is going to do, and I doubt if anybody actually knows what this will do to the uh, international market and to the economy in which the, the world lives or the stability of that global market. Uh, but we do know that God's economy is not based on these shifts that happen between nations that rise and fall and the currencies that we often trust in uh, to give value to the pieces of paper that we all use in all the different uh, economies of the world. And we do know that God's government is not based on uh, the stability or the protection or somehow uh, protecting the borders that are around us or the systems. We know that the future rests on something very different from these world systems and the way the world operates. Now we know that because the prophet Micah taught us this. 2,800 years ago, the words that we're about to read were written. He taught us that the ways of God are not just better forms of power and prestige and wealth, but rather they're a whole different nature, that the, the Christian life, the Christ life, is a way of justice and mercy, a way of humility filled with compassion and filled with love. That is why the world neither understands nor really has much interest in the ways of God. That is why we as God's people struggle to live in the midst of this secular world that values far different things than we value as human beings and as children. It's a world that not only wants to live without God, but wants us to live without God as well. And instead, the world teaches us the world's values, the world's motives, what the world calls success. And we're susceptible to it. We often buy into what the world says and what its politicians and leaders try to say to us. In, in other words, to put it in simple terms, what Micah calls us to do is not just live a better life doing the things of this world in a better way but rather to live a different life doing the things that God teaches us to do. Now to understand 
what Micah is saying to us, we need to go back just a little bit and do a little bit of context, a little bit of history, so that we understand what is happening in Micah's day 2,800 years ago and about 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. Now, to understand the prophet, we need to understand that there were two nations at this time. That northern kingdom, called Israel, was made up of ten of the twelve tribes. They shared the borders with Assyria, a powerful, cruel, greedy group of people that wanted to dominate the world, just as ISIS is doing in that region right now. The southern kingdom, Judah, was made up of the other two tribes and the priests of Levi. Now, to try to protect himself from the nation of Assyria and its cruel expansion, the king of Israel, Ahaz, in the northern kingdom, cooperated with the Assyrians. And thus, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and its Samaritans came under the influence of Assyria. This more powerful nation, of course, seduced God's people away from him. And they started accepting the Assyrian values of wealth and expansion and greed. They began to go the way of the Assyrian gods. This became a way of life. And historians tell us, and as Micah confirms in his uh, words, that the wealthy ruling class, just as the wealthy ruling class has always done, kept their standard of living by not only cooperating with the Assyrians, but adopting their practice of exploiting the poor, the powerless. And the few began living off the misery of the many, abandoning the teachings of the God of Israel and the care of the poor. Now the result of that cooperation of the northern kingdom was assimilation and exploitation of others. The Assyrians slowly then began to assimilate the people of God, disperse the people of the northern kingdom throughout the Assyrian Empire. It was a part of their way of breaking down any resistance that might occur by keeping all separated and out and making them Assyrians. Eventually weakened and destroyed the culture of the people of God no longer existed. The ten tribes were lost. They are still lost to this day. Today, only the two tribes of the southern kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, still exist. But in that great loss, Micah explains how God works. Not with size and power and domination, but with the small, faithful few. He did it that way all the way through the history of the people of God, up to and including today. For example, he did it 1,200 years earlier when he took the second son, Jacob, over the firstborn, Esau. He did it 600 years earlier when he took Joseph, the youngest of the then 12, and made him ruler over Egypt. He did it 200 years earlier when he took David, the baby, of this large family and made him king over his brothers. And now Micah says, God is going to do so again with Bethlehem. 
the smallest of the villages. But in that small hamlet, there will be a birth that will come not with pomp and circumstance, not with prestige and power, but in humble love. And in that small village, no more than a couple of hundred people, the world's hope for peace and goodwill will be born. It's proclaimed to the poorest of the poor, the shepherds living in the fields with their sheep. It would permeate the nations of the world as Micah prophesied such that now today, 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, 2,800 years after Micah said these words, this small town of Bethlehem is still being talked about for it's in that place that the world was changed. And it's from that place that the hope for peace actually resides. A place where heaven and earth meet a small, thin place in a manger. So we're here this morning not to get advice on how to win at the contests of this world and how this world defines a successful and meaningful life. We're not here to teach how to give power and wealth and fame. We're here to enter that whole new reality that only faith and justice and mercy and compassion and love can create. So let's go to Micah. We're going to go to the fifth chapter, the second verse, and we're only going to go through verse five as we take just a portion of the prophecies that are in this amazing book. You may want to spend some time reading the whole book this week. Micah writes, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, there was another Bethlehem, so Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Now keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, it's amazing as we read words that were written almost three millennia ago that they fit our daily paper, our current situation. The human condition is in need of a Savior. We're in need of Jesus. And as each of us live by that way, we recognize that in some ways we do not. We have also been seduced by a world that tries to define us by their standards and not by God's. And so each one of us are here to open ourselves to you and to live by your ways and you live by your truth and to accomplish your goals. So be with each of us. Speak to us. We're listening. And we will give you all the glory. Amen. 
It should be no surprise uh, to us that the scholars who created the lectionary would take us to Bethlehem on the Sunday before Christmas. But what should cause us to stop and ponder is why did God choose Bethlehem? Why did God choose this little tiny village? In fact, it should be utmost in our mind this Christmas season as to why God chooses the small and the powerless, the village and the baby, the child and the family, the love and the kindness. Why choose in a world that doesn't value the small or the powerless, the small and powerless child, the seemingly insignificant, to create his kingdom? What message is he sending to us? Our world, of course, whether it's in economic systems, as we've just seen with the power of China, brought its currency now into our way of doing life globally, or our government, which is struggling so to choose the right leaders, or the social systems, which try to create a, a monolithic kind of presence in a, in a nation or world, the world does not choose the small or the powerless. But it is interesting that the artists do. As you study film, as you study art, as you study music, it is always challenging this status quo call on humanity because the artists see they have eyes to look beneath. They begin to understand. Idealists see. But it's not the governments, it's not the social systems, it's not the economic systems. It's not the kingdoms of this world that have the eyes to see. So if we are praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, for his way to become our way in this world, then what does that mean for you and for me? What does it look like in real life every day? How does the God of Israel, the Father of Jesus, the giver of the Spirit, how does the living God's values become our own values and our own way of living? Well, God's message to us through Micah begins to answer those questions to us. I want to take you just a few chapters further down for a moment. Micah is best known, actually, not just for his prophecy of Bethlehem, but also for his answer to the question of what does God ask of us? He says these words, What does the Lord require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Now, I don't know about you, but as soon as I, I read those words, it, it's, it brings me up short, and I stop, and I ask myself the question, Am I just? Am I merciful? Do I walk humbly with God? Do I participate in anything that is unjust, anything lacking mercy, anything prideful? Are there changes that I need to make in the way I live my few days? Well, let's use our text to explore that together. Micah answers the question. He does so in actually very profound ways. We've already seen that he chose Bethlehem. He chooses the smallest and the least prestigious. 
Jerusalem is only a few miles away from Bethlehem. He could have chosen a palace, not a stable. He could have chosen an older, more experienced woman and not a teenager. He could have chosen a wealthy household and not a carpenter, but he did not. So let's ask ourselves a very simple question, actually. On what basis do I make my choices? And how do those choices describe whose kingdom I am serving? And how do those choices describe me? What is my identity based on the choices that I'm making with my life? Micah also explains that it's out of this small, thin place, this manger in Bethlehem, will come someone who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, it's not always true, but oftentimes our world values the new, the young, the novel. Yet God chooses whose origins are from old, from ancient times, a ruler from that vein. Now, scholars tell us that this is a reference back to King David 200 years before, and that this ruler who was born in Bethlehem, the house and lineage of David, that this ruler would come out of that lineage, and so we would know his pedigree by his lineage, and that we would know that he's the one that God is sending. But they also suggest, as is often true of, of prophecy, it has a unique uh, short-term meaning, but a larger spiritual meaning, they suggest that this is actually a very profound statement of the eternality of the Chosen One long before they understood that he was to be the Son of God, that this ruler would be from of old. Interesting, the Hebrew words there are kadem, meaning before, and olam, meaning eternity. So quite literally, if we were to interpret this, we could translate that this ruler would be from before eternity, the one who began before all beginnings, beginnings, the one who is before all things. Now, when we look at it with that kind of understanding, and of course the hindsight of 2,800 years, we look back through the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and recognize that Micah was writing of the Son of God, the one who was and is and will always be, the one who came incarnate into this world to rule Israel, all of God's people, all the people who want to serve and be with him, whose origins were before, was born in a place as small as Bethlehem, and not only in Bethlehem, but in a manger, in Bethlehem. So again, let's ask ourselves the question, what is my perspective on the value of things and places and people? How do I value things and places and people? Do I choose the new or the old? And if I choose the new or the novel, on what basis do I choose that? If I reject the old and ancient, why do I reject that? 
And do I look for the one whose origins are deeply rooted in a place beyond beginnings and endings? Do I look at the whole of the picture or am I limited in my frame? How do I see the world, myself and others? Micah continues and explains that this ruler will be a shepherd. He won't come as a mighty commander. It's fascinating to me how often, even in the church, we choose leaders or even choose to lead ourselves, not as a gentle shepherd, but as a brash commander. How out of place is that? A shepherd speaks to the heart and calls the longing to belong and to be one with. The commander cares nothing about the heart, using power and force will demand its way upon the person. The shepherd, as Micah explains, bring home, brings home his brothers and his sisters. The shepherd changes the very nature of the human being as the heart is transformed. We create then a whole different world than one of commanders and conflict and unending war. So let's ask ourselves the simple question. What do I expect in a leader? What leaders do I choose? What kind of leader am I when I have the opportunity? How have I brought into the expect how have I bought into the expectations of the kingdoms of this world such that I do things the way the world does them? In what or where do I get my identity and my security? And last, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. Even when the Assyrians invade, even when physical freedom is lost. So often we measure our lives by the political and economic and social events that surround us. As a pastor, I've heard a lot of people being very concerned during these days, very upset about what they see happening in the world, even allowing their fear to get in the way of their love in the way of their mercy, in the way of their justice, in the way of their humility. So again, let's ask ourselves the question, on what foundation or person have I placed my life? What brings me peace? Have I given my fears over to those who want me to hate people who are poor, or hate people who are in need? or hate people who are trying to find a better life? What is that doing in me and in my heart, in my mind and my soul? Have I substituted the love of God that he's given for me to give to everyone for some other motivation, goal, or fear? Who am I? God's kingdom has uh, the scriptures explain all the way through it's totally different from the kingdoms of this world. It's not just a better kingdom. It is a different kingdom. It's a whole different way of being and doing and living in every part of our lives. Our Christmas should be something that is so different from the world's that it's hardly recognizable as being the world's Christmas. So in this 
week now where we celebrate his wondrous coming, the one who is from before eternity born into reality, into physicality. Let's spend time with that one. Let's pray.